As we continue in our study of the gospel according to John, I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 13 as we look yet again on that night uh, known as Maundy Thursday uh, to all that took place and to what our Lord instructs us through that. While you're turning, I'll just use that as an opportunity to plug uh, our upcoming Maundy Thursday service in a few weeks. Uh, Thursday prior to Easter, we gather together as a time of reflection, uh, meditation, and celebration of God's grace to us. And so I want to encourage you to mark that on your calendar and maybe invite those uh, that are unchurched friends of yours. And in this case, uh, maybe even those who have no place else but want to celebrate that, uh, that would benefit from it, um, that we can join together. Since we're also plugging that, we'll remind, as Camper had said, Thursday night is a time for us to come together and pray this coming week, and that's finally important into the life of any church. And so uh, it's, uh, I want to ask, encourage you to put that on your calendar and come and join us. It's not a night off. In fact, it's been said that when we work, we work, but when we pray, God works. And so if you've been wanting to see God at work in your life or through you to other people, uh, if you're wanting to see this church uh, be a blessing to our community or continue to our tradition of sending people out into the global mission field, being a church that prays, that having prayer is a vital part of it, uh, and part of that is gathering together as we have opportunity. So I invite you to come. It shouldn't be a chore. Isaiah plays the music to make it nice, and then we all get to not only eat but have time together lifting our voices in prayer there. This morning we've come and we have the opportunity to hear from our Lord, and we hear through the Apostle John his words, beginning our reading in verse 18 of John 13, continuing through verse 35. Hear the word of the Lord. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, One of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of God glorified, Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, 
and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The word of our God. They were all gathered together in an upper room for the celebration of the Passover with anticipation of all of the promises of the Passover to come to fruition and with some level of expectation that something soon was about to happen even if they had no idea exactly what that was. And then suddenly Jesus drops a bomb on them. One of you will betray me. Now, maybe they had noticed that there had been a change in the tone or in the the mood of Jesus. We are told that as Jesus was speaking with them, that Jesus was troubled in spirit. That word that is translated troubled in spirit is the, the same word that is used when Jesus was standing before the tomb of his friend Lazarus and he was broken and weeping. It's the same word that was used again in chapter 12 when Jesus was contemplating and dreading the cross that at the time uh, was a short time away and even now is only a matter of hours away and the clock is ticking. But he is in this room and now very heavy hearted and somber. He makes a sobering statement one of you is going to betray me. The pin could have dropped and been heard in that room. Imagine if one of your own family gatherings, whether it's a Christmas party or a birthday party or just some other celebration, you come together and everybody's there for a festivity and one of your family members says something like this, one of you will betray me. Now, at our family gatherings, our first thought would probably be to to, to kind of laugh it off and wonder what, uh, what, what was going on. Uh, but if they carry the gravity that Jesus had demonstrated on his face and in his countenance, you would recognize that they were deadly serious. And Jesus here was very definitely serious. And the disciples sat there stunned. We, we read in verse 22 of their reaction to Jesus' statement here. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom Jesus spoke. In other words, they heard this and they just stood there or sat there and they stared at one another at a loss, having no idea what, what Jesus meant. We're told also that in, by both Matthew and Mark that after Jesus said this, each of the disciples, while they're staring at the other and they're trying to drink all of this in, each of them said to Jesus, It's not me, is it? Every one of them in that room feeling the weight of what Jesus had to say and then considering their own lives and their own hearts and their own relationship with God and every one of them feeling that upon themselves. 
And then John does tell us something else that happens here. Peter, who was apparently not sitting at the center of, of the table, he nods over to John, who was sitting right next to Jesus, and tells him, you know, ask him. And John, we're told, he leans back, which is the indication of the cultural trends. They didn't sit around tables like we do, and they don't space themselves the way that we want to. The idea of the, you know, the, the close proximity, the, the space that we like, uh, these were, they, they, they were literally leaning up on one another. And so we're told that John was sitting there. He leans into Jesus' chest and says, who is it, Lord? And then what really is quite astounding is Jesus' response because we, we read here in verse 26, Jesus answered the question, who is it? And said, it is, it is he uh, to whom I will give this morsel of bread after I've dipped it. So when Jesus had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. I mean, you get the picture of here what's going on. They ask Jesus, who is it? Who is the one? Who, who do you have in mind? Who is it that is going to betray you? And Jesus doesn't say right out, but he gives them a pretty good indication. It's the one to whom this morsel, after I dip it, I'm going to give it to him. That's the one who did it. And he, we're told he dipped it in the sauce pulls it back out, and feeds it to Judas. And the disciples are all there, but who is it? It just, it just baffled them that this was Judas. And it's all the particularly uh, more astounding when we consider every one of them had asked, it's not me, is it? See, Judas had played the role. Whether he was play acting or whether he just the hardness of his heart and the incongruency of his understanding of Jesus's mission uh, and his own plans for what he wanted of Jesus uh, had finally come to full blossom. That we are, are never, never told. But we can see quite clearly the disciples assumed that each of them might be more likely to be the culprit than Judas himself. Now, Bible scholars say that Judas was among them to be the one who had the, the most class, the most education. He was the one that would have the most couth. And he played his role well. He demonstrated just like all of them that he was a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And yet his heart was hardened for whatever the reasons. He's the one who betrays Jesus. And whenever I think about this passage, I, I, I am amazed by a number of things. First, I'm amazed that Jesus didn't just call him right out then and there. One of you is going to betray me. In fact, you, the one sitting right here to, to my left, doesn't call him out by name. Now, I'm not sure why he doesn't do that. I, I assume it's because that if he names Judas specifically, he's quite aware that the other disciples, mostly perhaps Peter, would have taken him out back into the woodshed and given him a holy butt kicking. Um, and if he was, you know, wounded, hospitalized, or dead, then he would not have fulfilled what the prophecies had said. Jesus would not have been betrayed, therefore he would not have been arrested, therefore he would not have been crucified. And if he is not crucified, then he's not raised on the third day, and we are all still left in our sins. Now, I don't know if that's actually the reasons why, but it seems to make sense. But more amazing to me is that the disciples couldn't figure it out. Even with such a clue. And why each of them thought they themselves might be more likely to be guilty than was the one 
who actually had perpetrated uh, this betrayal. Paul tells us that there is none righteous, not one. And we see that these disciples seem to understand that about themselves. When push came to shove, when confronted with uh, this reality, they, they recognized their own sin and their own shortcomings and their own capacity to fail and even in their actions somehow betray this one whom they followed, this one whom they claimed to love. And as I think about them drinking all of that in, I was reminded of the words of a song that uh, songwriter Michael Card um, recorded a number of years ago. It was called The Traitor's Look. Here's what Michael Card wrote. Now, Judas, don't you come too close. I fear that I might see. That traitor's look upon your face might look too much like me. Because just like you, I've sold the Lord and often for much less. And like you, wretched traitor, I betray him with a kiss. See, the disciples were not unique in this. When Paul later tells us there's not one that's righteous, not one. That's not just about those in the room. That is all of us in all of humanity. Every one of us carries the effects of sin. Those that are still apart from Christ, um, carrying the full weight and are enslaved to it. And those of us who have been set free from that still carry the effects of it. It no longer owns us, but we give to it voluntarily. Like Judas, we are prone to have our own design, our own agendas, and we want God to baptize those. Because what we want is something, and we believe that God is the best one who is capable of giving us that something that we want, not recognizing until we are gathered together or something that God does brings us to our senses to remind us is that having God himself is greater than having any other thing, and that everything that we ultimately desire is found in him and not just from him. But while we continue to be confused about that in our minds, and it's a very common thing, like the disciples, we have to examine our hearts and find out, am I? Am I prone? Am I subject? Have I done something that is saying I love you, Lord, but selling him out so that I can get something else? So when I look at this passage, it strikes me that it, it gives me a, what I would call a holy insecurity because it forces me to look at my own heart and my own life and the own patterns of my life and to recognize that while I claim and have given myself to following Jesus Christ, I still have my own agenda. I, the old me, is not dead enough yet. And what's true of the disciples and what is true of me is true of all of us. And it's important that we understand this. But against the backdrop of that reality of the fact that none of us is righteous and any of us uh, is, is capable of betraying the Lord, we see really, I believe, what are the primary points of this particular text. First, we see in this text is Jesus demonstrating a radical love for us, and then we will see that Jesus demands 
a radical love from us. First, as we look at this, we see against the backdrop of the brokenness of the disciples, not only Judas, but particularly Judas, the disciples who are broken, uh, who represent us, and then Judas, who is actually the, the guilty party who has betrayed the Lord, Jesus' response is absolutely incredible. You see, in the culture of the day, to take a morsel from the table and to dip it and then to feed it to somebody is a gesture of friendship. Now, we understand it sort of, it's not our culture, but even in our own experience, I mean, how close do you have to be to somebody to, you know, take food and stick it in their mouth? Um, you know, Camper and I will grab lunch once in a while, that's not gonna happen. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, it's, it's husband and wife or people that are really close and they'll say, hey, this is great, taste this, and they give. So we get some sense of the intimacy, and yet that was cultural, and so it wasn't just the, the closest intimacy, although there was a great connection, but it was an expression of friendship. It was saying, you are my friend. I want to be your friend. It's a demonstration of love. And yet consider what was taking place. Because what we read in the beginning, and I kind of just skimmed over, is that Jesus began this saying, look, not all of you belong to this household. I know every one of you. I know what's going to go on. And I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm telling you in advance so that when it happens, you will believe and he knew very well who it was that was going to betray him. While Judas may have thought that he had gone incognito, Jesus says, no, no, there, there's nothing I don't know. I know what's going to happen. I know your heart. And against the betrayal, against one who has essentially declared himself to be Jesus' enemy, even though he thought he was still his friend, Jesus says, here's how I respond to those who sin against me. Friendship. What an incredible, incredible display. And it's something that we need to understand because while this passage does beg for us all to have some level of a holy insecurity, to be able to ask ourselves and the Lord the question that the disciples asked, is it me? Have I done something to betray you? Have I offended you? Have I alienated you? The answer to the alienation is no, not for anybody that belongs, uh, belongs to Jesus. And his response to those who fail him is an offer of friendship. We see in this an incredible, a radical demonstration of love for us. But we also see that from this, the conversation continues, that Jesus isn't just demonstrating love for us. Jesus demands a radical love from us. And, and we see that in the verses that follow, but particularly in verse 34 and then in verse 35. In verse 34, we read this because Jesus declares, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. See, this is a call for us. It's a command, really to live lives of radical love toward others who are in the household of faith in particular. It's the mark of all who belong to Jesus Christ and are part of any church where he is lifted up and exalted. 
But as we consider what Jesus said here, we need to recognize a couple of things on this. First, he's saying it is a command. And I emphasize that for those who sometimes get confused as they've been in different churches thinking commands were for the Old Testament and nothing but, you know, grace is for the New Testament time, as if the law and grace are at odds with one another. But if you're under the impression if somebody's helped you to make the mistake of thinking commands were only for the, the pre-crucifixion, nobody seemed to tell Jesus this. He says, this is a new command that I have for you. Now, it is pre-crucifixion, but I think it's a safe bet since he was going to be crucified in about 12 hours, that it wasn't a command that was only going to be lasting through the night. This is a command. This is the full weight of law that expresses the heart and the intentions of God and the expectations of those who believe him. That the law that Jesus is laying down is that we are to love one another. Well, wait a second, is that a new command? Is somebody might be thinking about it? I mean, you know, the, the love one another part is, um, it seems to be elsewhere in the scriptures. And the reality is that part of it is not new at all. The idea that we are to love other people is saturated and it permeates all of, of the scripture. We see it clearly in the Levitical law. We see it embedded in the Ten Commandments because commandments five through ten are how we are to live in a relationship with other people, how we can demonstrate love uh, toward other people through what is prohibited and what is implied and to be encouraged. And so in the sense that Jesus is saying that you're to be loving other people, that's not a new commandment at all. But what is new is the measure or the standard by which love is to be measured. See, prior to this, the standard was to love other people. And essentially, how do you know whether you've succeeded? It's love other people the way that you would love yourself. In fact, Jesus had said that when he was questioned not too long before this. Somebody came up and said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength. And then because it is inseparable, Jesus said, and the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. See, the standard has been through all of history at that point is that we are called to love the people who are around us, our neighbors, whatever category that, they, that might fall under, but anybody that is in any proximity to us whatsoever, we're to love them, and the standard is what would we want? How would we want to be treated? How would we want people to relate to us? And Jesus, without mitigating that, raises the standard here. Rather than love people as you want to be loved, he says, you're to love one another as I have loved you. It's an incredibly elevated command and standard. It begs us to ask the question then, how has Jesus loved us? Well, clearly the context tells us that we need to consider how Jesus has demonstrated his radical love towards Judas, who represents those who have failed Jesus, who have betrayed Jesus, who have at least temporarily, and in Judas's case permanently, become the enemies of God, the enemies of Jesus. And Jesus's love for, demonstrated for Judas in that way was to be his friend. You see, it wasn't the rejection that Jesus gave to Judas. Jesus never rejected Judas that led Judas to 
not only betray, but ultimately to commit suicide. In fact, I suspect it was the love of Jesus that drove Judas insane, at least for the moment, that in the depths of despair, because he had some idea of what have I done? Maybe it was, as many scholars, and as my, my tendency to believe, is that Judas had a more of a political agenda and Jesus wasn't getting with it quickly enough. And so that Jesus, who had demonstrated so much power, if he was confronted by the authorities, he would have to retaliate and then, therefore, we'd usher the kingdom and he'd become the king that he keeps rejecting to be. But when they came to arrest him and he didn't fight back, then he's now in the custody of these people. He knew what they wanted to kill him. Judas realized that this betrayal backfired. And I don't know that that's the truth. We're not told specifically. It's a fairly common understanding among Bible scholars and Bible students. But whatever it was, I would tell you this, that nowhere do we see that Jesus rejected Judas. Jesus loved Judas, and that love broke him. And rather than repentance, he did penance, committing suicide, therefore never experiencing love in its ultimate sense. And that's vitally important, too, because we see in this text not only that the love of God is demonstrated through Jesus Christ by loving those who were his enemies, but Jesus begins teaching here after Judas leaves, we're told in verses 31 through 33, he, 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 just, he starts talking, and he says, he said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. In verse 33, little children, uh, yet a little while... I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, now I say to you where I am going, you cannot come. Where was he going that they could not come? And most scholars would say to the cross. Jesus is speaking there, and he's, he's talking in somewhat cryptic language about what was going to take place in just a few hours. That Jesus, would be, who was betrayed, would be arrested, he would be tried, he would be convicted, he would be crucified, and he would be killed. But that was the plan all along. And so Jesus here speaking of the cross, which is a demonstration of love in the ultimate sense. He lays down his life to redeem a people, to free a people from the bondage of their sin and from their own destiny towards death. Because he loved them, loved us in that ultimate sense. And we can't neglect the passage that we looked at last week because it's all in the same night. It's all running together. That Jesus also demonstrated love towards the people who were around him by serving them. He washed their feet. And so love is not only ultimate, but love is practical, meeting the practical needs because their, their feet were in need of washing. And so Jesus loved them in something that was practical, even in something that was unpleasant, even disgusting to do. And when we look at just these three things that are within this short passage, we see that Jesus loves ultimately on the cross, practically in whatever is needed, and with no limitations because it's extended even to those who betrayed him or act as if they hate him. And none of that even takes into consideration the fact that he was present with them. And so love is also very present. This is the way that Jesus has loved his disciples and loves his people. And Jesus says, here's my new command. You're to love each other in the same way that I have loved you. And we see that parameter. See, this is a call to community that Jesus is making very vivid. And it's, it, 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 we are created for community. And Jesus is putting the law to show that we are in need of one another. 
that call is rooted in the very nature of God himself, in whose image we were created. But from the very beginning, whatever the beginning was, before there was a beginning from all eternity, God has lived in perfect community in the persons of the Trinity. And therefore, his creating us after his image, we also are to be living in community, which is a reflection of the nature of God. But we also are in need of it. We understand that need of community. It's reflected in our culture in various ways. Think about what is the greatest punishment that takes place within our penal system. Solitary confinement. When somebody gets out of hand, he's separated from the population as a whole and put away on his own, not only to protect the others, but as a punishment to them. To being alone is considered a, a punishment if we know that we have no connection with other people. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't need our alone time, and some of you are more introverted than the others. You might need more alone time. But ultimately, if we think that we can live this life alone, we are kidding ourselves. We are in need of other people, and it's demonstrated over and over again. I think of the movie Castaway and Tom Hanks' ca uh, character who's alone on that island. What does he do in order to preserve his sanity? Well, he makes a friend, Wilson, the volleyball. And one of the most poignant and moving scenes in that entire movie is when Wilson floats away, and Tom Hanks is screaming, Wilson! And your hearts break and admit it. Some of you guys, even you cry. It's a volleyball. But it's a demonstration that we all resonate with because we all know we need other people. And God has called us to be his followers, has commanded us that we live our lives in community. But we also need to acknowledge that sometimes community is messy. And the reason that it's messy is because the church is filled with broken people. In some cases, perhaps we might say like the disciples, that among the number in any church are those who really don't belong to Jesus. But it's messy even amongst those who do. Because every one of us is broken in some way. Every one of us is needy, and every one of us, by our fallen nature, is self-centered. And it's only as God is at work within us through Christ, who is giving us his love, enabling us to die to our self-centeredness and then live for something greater than ourselves, which is the kingdom of God expressed in the way that we live for other people. And so God is not calling us to something that's not messy. Remember, love is practical as well as it is ultimate. And sometimes it gets messy, and we engage people wherever they are to live together to reflect the, the love of God in our midst. But we also need to recognize that that kind of community, when we engage people who are broken, who are needy, who are demanding, and sometimes they're never gonna pay us back, we're never gonna get what we need, it is also beautiful. And it brings pleasure to God. Just as those of us who have children 
who have demonstrated that in their own lives. It brings us joy. I think back this week as I was thinking about this, it could be any of our children, but in particular poignant, our, our first child, when he was third or fourth grade, I don't remember what it was, and he was a very active boy. His athletic ability was already showing. He was academically uh, well above um, the, uh, the Mendoza line for, uh, for his school. And he would be playing at recess like most boys that were of that age were. So he was engaged in this sport or that. And, and, and that's what he loved to do. And he did it very well. But in his class, or at least in his grade, there was a young girl uh, who lived in one of the hollows in North Georgia, just underneath Lookout Mountain, uh, from an underprivileged family and with Down syndrome. And she didn't have a lot of friends. But she would swing on the swing in the back schoolyard, and she would just yell out, Andrew! And Andrew, our son, would drop what he was doing. He would come over, and he would spend his recess pushing this little girl with Down syndrome. When the teacher told us this, of course we burst in pride and, and this. And, and your own children have probably experienced different things, and probably things that we never even know about that our kids have done. But when we see that in our children, how do we feel? And we recognize that God, who is our Father, takes delight when we love others, just as we take delight when our children are loving other people as well. And Jesus says, not only is this a command, but what we see ultimately is, Jesus says, this is our identity. This is what Francis Schaeffer calls the mark of the Christian. We see it in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, we need to recognize what he's saying here. It's not by our sound doctrine. That's important. It's not by what we engage on in mission necessarily, although we're called to that and we're empowered to that and we're to be a part of that. In fact, this is actually part of the mission itself. But by the way that we live together and relate to one another, the way that we love one another is the mark that distinguishes those who belong to Jesus from those who do not. Francis Schaeffer, not only to call it the mark of the Christian, he says that this statement that Jesus makes, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. It gives the world around us the right to judge whether or not we are followers of Jesus Christ or not. The presence or the absence of the way that we connect, invest, care for, meet needs, sacrifice for, love others that are part of the household of faith gives the world the right to judge whether or not we believe what we proclaim. Which begs the question, how do we do? How are we doing? Now, the reality is that there are some of you in our congregation that are so far above me that I, it's inspiring and shaming at the same time. But there are others among us that are desire and we're lacking. And there may be some others still who, this is all new to you. I mean, this is what I signed up for when I got you. I just thought I was getting saved. I didn't know I was supposed to like help other, do things for other people, especially the ones I don't like. And the fact is, you know, we're no more likable than other people. I mean, the church is broken people. The church, you know, Paul says that God chose the foolish. I would say God chose the weird. That's us. We're weird. <laughs> Some more evident than others, but that's besides the point. But, but this is the command that we are to recognize. And by being confronted with this reality, we recognize then probably our limitations as well.
Some are easy to love, everybody loves them. Some are harder to love. Some exhaust what we believe to have the resources of our love and we recognize we have limits. But this is a command and it doesn't know any limits. And the world around us has been given the right, according to Jesus, to judge whether or not we belong. Now, understand this, it's not judging whether we actually are in Christ. If we fail in this area, it's not saying that we are not Christians. But it does mean that there's reason to assume that we are not followers of Jesus Christ. But what if this increasingly did characterize us? In this church, in your small group, connecting with other believers elsewhere. We see the radical difference between what Jesus is doing and and calling us to, and ultimately the way that we live apart from Christ. But know this, if the whole idea is daunting, because you know you have limitations, You know that the people that God has sovereignly placed in your life are there to sanctify you to levels that you have really no interest to get of attaining. In other words, you've got people who are quite challenging. It's not about Jesus saying to them, here's what you need to do. It's a command, but it is rooted in something that is even more real. See, preceding love one another is as I have loved you. In other words, be reminded that you are loved by Jesus Christ in an ultimate sense, in an inexhaustible sense, in a practical sense, in a providing sense. And whatever it is that might cause you to feel that you cannot love the people in your life or the people that you have shielded from your life, All of those resources are found in Jesus Christ who loves you and has provided to give to you and to me and to all of his people love. And it begins by reminding us that we are loved and that we are in need of more love. But everything that we fear losing by giving ourselves away is ours already in Christ Jesus. May God grant us to remember and to believe.